Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. We're looking this morning at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Follow along uh, in your Bible as I read. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So here's what I'm going to try to do if technology will allow. I'm going to play uh, some snippets of songs, and I want you to name the show from which that song comes. Are you ready? may take a second on a couple of them. Let's try it. I, I attempted this this morning. Very good. There's 104 days of summer vacation. You kids, the adults are like, uh, kids, what is it? All right, very good. This one takes a second. You guys are on the point. All right, last one. Everybody should get this one. Well, no, it's not last one. Huh? Parent, parent, parents of young people know that one. That is... Thomas the Train. Paige is rubbing her forehead as if she's having PTSD. All right. Finally. Ish. All right. Now, why in the world would I do that? Mr. Ron says, I have no idea. Here's why. Because you heard things either from your childhood or from recent events, and you heard just two seconds, and immediately you picked up on everything that uh, was going on. You knew where it came from. You knew what it referred to, and you were able to name it. And if I were to say, tell me about Andy Griffith, tell me about the Adams Family, You'd be able to tell me probably, hopefully, a little bit of the story. And if you are, um, you know, younger, you would know that Phineas and Ferb, honestly, is one of the best cartoons ever written. And Thomas the Tank Engine is one of the most annoying shows ever conceived. It was written by a pastor, which is just a shame. Uh, but I, my kids love Thomas uh, growing up. And Thomas is cool for those of you who like it. So why in the world would we do this? Well, because imagine that if instead of a TV, all you had was an Old Testament. And imagine if instead of watching TV for hours a day, which I'm known to do as well, um, you, you went to Sabbath school and you, you learned stories and you learned phrasings. So that whenever you saw those sorts of things, immediately a whole bunch of associations would come to mind. Now the reason I started us off today with those five clips is because if you have a good Old Testament knowledge, the New Testament is like that. We saw this all over the place in the book of Revelation, didn't we? 
The book of Revelation really is just a commentary on the prophetic hope of the Old Testament. Over 600 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And we're supposed to read that book with the Old Testament in hand. Well, even though Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel, and even though we sometimes feel like it leaves some really good stuff out, for instance, when I told my wife last night I was preaching on the temptation, she's like, oh, great, that's going to be awesome. I'm like, I'm not covering Jesus' actual temptation. She was like, she was a little let down um, because Matthew tells us about Jesus' three temptations because Matthew has a reason for doing that. Mark has another point he wants to make, and I want to respect Mark because we're preaching through Mark, all right? Uh, And Mark is going to make some Old Testament allusions that if we had good ears, we would be able to hear. Now, you're like, Drew, I don't know the Old Testament. I don't know that I'll ever know the Old Testament, but I love to read the Gospels, and I get a lot out of them. Great. You can get amazing things out of the Gospels just as they are as a, a modern reader. But Mark would have woven some references in that would have helped us understand what's going on. And I think they're references that the other writers of Scripture would have read and picked up on and gone, wow, man, that's theological meat. And so this morning we're looking at Jesus in the wilderness. And one uh, Old Testament commentator says this, one commentator on Mark says this, each detail in these two verses is rooted in the wilderness tradition of the Old Testament and serves to clarify the significance of the the wilderness to Mark. And so this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, what I want to do is just talk through these two verses and talk through all the things that are going on there so that we can really appreciate what Jesus did in entering into that wilderness. Okay? So I'm going to kind of ask two questions. What is happening and what does it mean? And that's our two questions this morning. So let's just start with the first, looking at this again, knowing that there's like significances. Like they would have heard the Adams family when they heard the wilderness. And they would have heard Andy Griffith when they heard wild animals. And they would have heard all kinds of things. And so especially in light of what went ahead. So let's point these things out so that we can appreciate Jesus more and more. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. You guys know this by now. My aim is not always to preach sermons that are immediately practical. I don't, I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. I think I'm, we, can have a, we, can, we can apply this. I don't know that I've got something that you'll go, all right, tomorrow, that's going to help me. All I have is this, and this is my hope, that you appreciate Jesus more. Uh, and I do think if you learn to do that, that'll help you tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. And, and, and if you'll realize that you're part of a story that began in the Old Testament and the point of Bible reading is not necessarily for me to make the story relevant to you, but for me to help you make your life relevant to the Bible's story. That's what we're after here. I want you to get caught up in what God is doing in Adam, Israel, and Jesus because our day in and day out lives in Manning or Sumter or Alkaloo or down Uh, in Somerton, at the lake, our lives gain their significance from being part of a bigger story uh, that involves Jesus. And our day in and day out stuff really does find its significance, not in that the Bible is applicable to it always, but because we can be taken up into the grand story of what God is doing in the world. 
Y'all follow that? Okay. So what's happening? Here's what's happening. Jesus, as a new Adam, is facing temptation. All right? Now, we would have, we would have seen this after everything we looked at last week. Remember verse 11? Look back up at it. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And we pointed out that that's Isaiah 42, Genesis 22, and Psalm 2. And we said that Jesus is going to have this unique ministry of being like a suffering servant king who dies. Genesis 22 is that story of Abraham and Isaac. Take your son, your beloved son, the one that you love. Take him and slaughter him. That's the story in Genesis 22. Of course, Isaac lives, but Jesus won't. So when, when God says, you're my beloved son, they would have heard Genesis 22. When he said, you are my son, they would have heard Psalm 2, which is this great psalm about Jesus becoming the messianic king. And then when it says, with you I am well pleased, that would have taken them to Isaiah 42 with that whole story of this servant who lives out the life that Israel should have and then dies, like it says in Isaiah 52 and 53. So this would have been interesting. And it says, immediately the Spirit drove him, this son, out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now let's think about Genesis, all right? We had in Jesus' baptism last week the Spirit coming down like a what? A dove. And so all of these things would have been picked up by the first readers of Mark that said, all right, the Spirit is hovering over some water like a dove. That reminds me of Genesis 1 in that day of creation when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And they would have said, oh, this is like a, a creational sort of thing. And then Jesus steps onto the scene, and he's told that he is God's Son, we know from Genesis 1, Luke tells us this, that Adam was God's son in a sense that he was his creation and he was intended to be a king. So we've got creation, we've got the announcement of the son, and then what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden in the third chapter of Genesis? They're tempted by who? By the Satan, right? Uh, and so we see the same thing here, that Jesus has this new creational language He's a beloved son. He's like a new Adam. And then he's driven out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. In other words, Jesus coming on to the scene. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, you need to know this. Like, we don't think that Jesus was just kind of a dude who lived and then through a bunch of misfortune uh, ended up on a cross and had some followers. We actually think that God is making everything new again in Jesus. And so Jesus isn't just like a man. Jesus is a new Adam. And all of this stuff is weaved into Mark with the language of the Spirit and the language of the, the Father and then him being driven out into the wilderness. But whereas Adam failed, uh, Jesus doesn't fail, right? And we know from Matthew that Jesus tempted I'm sorry, Satan tempted Jesus with all the temptations that we face, the lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread, the lust of the eyes, look at all of this, I can make it yours, the boastful pride of life, throw yourself off the temple, see what happens. Jesus faced all the kinds of temptations that we faced, 
But whereas the first Adam fell into sin and brought with him all kinds of misery and death, Jesus did not fail. See, Paul wasn't making this stuff up in 2 Corinthians, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5. When Paul talks about Jesus as a new Adam, he was getting this from the kind of theology that you find in Mark, where you either stand before God in the first man, Adam, and his death and his sin, or you stand before God in the new man, Jesus, who brought life and never sinned. Because here's the thing, from the Bible's perspective, and remember, the Bible is God speaking to us, the Bible is God telling us what's true, God says you'll never ever stand before him alone. You'll either stand before him represented by Adam or you'll stand before him represented by Jesus. And a new creation is coming in Jesus. So what we see is Jesus, this new Adam, facing temptation. But Adam faced temptation in a garden. Jesus faced temptation where? In the wilderness, in, in scrublands, out uh, away from town, out where the wild things are. And he stays there for 40 days. And again, 40 days, all kinds of like Old Testament things would be clicking in your mind. Uh, because the people of Israel were in the desert for how many years? 40 years. Moses was uh, estranged for how many years? 40 years, and then Elijah had a season in his life where he was on the run and kind of by himself and depressed for how many days? 40 days. And so what's interesting is, in all of those 40-day sort of periods, what you have is, in the Bible, you have a distillation of what life is going to be like for those people. So Moses is 40 years in the wilderness where he's shepherding sheep, and his ministry is going to be leading the sheep of the people of Israel through a desert. Right? Elijah has a prophetic ministry where there's ups and downs and victories, and he experiences all these things in the 40 days. These 40-day periods are like to be a, a distillation and a punctuated experience of what life was going to be like. So when we say that Jesus was tempted and in a wilderness for 40 days, that was God saying, this is what life is going to be like for you, son. You're going to be tempted on every side by Satan, and you're going to be living in the wilderness among wild things. And son, I want you to remain faithful through it all because you're going to stand as the new Adam, as the new representative of this new creation that I'm making. Just to clear this up, and we looked at this when we talked through Revelation, Christians in the West are more like the philosopher Plato than they are like the theologian Paul. Because our hopes have kind of begun to be centered around escaping this fleshly prison and going up to heaven where everything is bright and airy and celestial. And the only problem is that's not the Bible's hope. We've gone through this so many times, but it's just worth repeating because we're trying to break out of a mindset. In the Bible, it, God doesn't win if all the good people just escape. God wins when he goes back to his creation and he makes it new and he brings justice and he makes it what he intended to make it. And so our hope is not that we'll kind of end up in heaven and stay there. 
Our hope is that we will be resurrected just like Jesus was on a renewed earth, a new creation, and that new creation starts in Jesus. And all of this is in these resonances that Mark is giving us. And so Jesus is facing temptation in the wilderness. The wilderness is where Israel failed, right? God gave them manna and they complained. He gave them meat and they complained. He made it so that their shoes didn't wear out and they complained. They complained. He gave them water from a rock and they complained. And they worshipped other idols and they fell. And now the earth, because of Adam and because of Israel, is not a garden. Now the earth is like a wilderness. And here's where I want you to appreciate Jesus. He was not above going down to that to save you. So the father said... Son, I'm going to send you, and you're going to live a life of temptation where you can't fail, and you can only live it, not in the power of your divine life, but only with the resources that humans have. So I'll give you the spirit, but you're going to have to walk in that life. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be among wild animals. It's going to be deserted, and it's going to be rough, and it's going to end with your a rejection by all the meager followers that you got, and then you're going to be killed by the Romans and hated by the Jews. But this is the only way that you can make the world right. And Jesus said, yes, sir, I will. Not only is he in the wilderness, but Mark adds this interesting point that none of the other Gospels add. It says, and he was with the wild animals. Now, if everything else was the Adams family, then this is the Duke boys. All right? Wild animals. You hear something in that. What do you hear? Well, throughout the Old Testament, remember, and I don't want to shy away from this in some scientific age. One of the things we want to do is make it all about heaven because we feel like this is bad and we can't make this anything other than bad. I don't feel like I'd be doing you any service if I stepped away from the Bible's hope. Okay, and so the Bible's hope, and this was the covenant that God made with Israel, that if you obey and if you live and worship and if you seek me and if you're my people and if you don't have other gods, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to have plenty of food. The land is going to stay watered. You won't experience drought. Things will be great. The earth will produce its uh, increase. And as you grow, the earth will abound. God said, but if you worship other gods... And if you go after other things, then there will be seasons of drought. There will be wild animals. Your city will be overtaken. You'll be under my curse. So in the Old Testament, one of the signs that you were kind of under God's curse for your sin was that wild animals took over your land. So in Leviticus 26, 21, it says this, God speaking to the people of Israel, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Or when Babylon is destroyed in Isaiah 13, the Lord says to Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, they'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for generations. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. 
Or in Ezekiel 34, when God is talking about the new covenant he's going to make with his people, he says this, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I hope you guys understand what I mean. But if human beings lived in right relationship with God, the earth would flourish. And that human beings don't live in right relationship with God causes the earth not to flourish. We don't have to be environmental, but we should care about the earth that God made. There should be some kind of Christian form of stewardship of the earth that's theological and right because that was part of the covenant that God made. We can't go, well, it's all going to burn. Is that right? I don't think that's right. I think it is, we should look at the Bible and see that one of the threads of the story is, if we were living the way that God intended, the earth would flourish. And that one day the earth will flourish. But what we see now is not a flourishing earth. We see Jesus entering into the wilderness with the wild animals. And what the Old Testament kind of overtones of that would signify is that Israel and the land is under a curse and what Jesus has done is he entered into that curse. He's gone out to where the wild animals are, out in the wild regions where the devil reigns. He's gone to the devil's turf to be tempted so that he might bear our curse. This is the same thing that happened when Jesus was baptized. Baptism is a sign that you need to be cleansed and you need to be washed. And Jesus submitted to baptism even though he had not sinned as a way to relate to us and to take up the sign of our curse. And now he goes out into the wilderness with the wild animals so that he can take up our curse and redeem us from it. We hiked on my sabbatical with George and Jessica Fogasa to a beautiful, um, a, a beautiful waterfall that there was only one trail to. And it was really amazing. We had a really, really fun time. George and Jessica are great. We missed them. Shed a tear. Um, but the whole time I was walking to that waterfall, I was thinking, is that a snake? Is that a snake? Is that a snake? Was that a bear? Are mountain lions here? Uh, like, I couldn't enjoy. Like, there was, like, blackberries growing off of vines the whole trail, and you just pick them and eat. But every time you go to pick a blackberry, what do you got to watch out for? Thorns. Thorns. Watch out. For, and, like, we were bleeding by the end of this trip with, like, cuts on our it was fun. It was great. We saw beautiful things, but I just, that, you, that idea of living in fear means that this earth is kind of under a curse where stuff can get you and you can be hurt. And Jesus entered into that for us so that he might redeem us from it. And then at the end here, it says that Jesus was ministered to by angels. And I just want to point out when Mark says that, what he means is that not only did Jesus take up our wilderness, not only did he take up our threat, but he also took up our need. When he entered into the wilderness, he, he was faithful, but he needed help. He entered into a situation where he came to understand what it must be like to need help.
I'm, I'm sorry that what the world sees of Christianity is signs that say God hates fags. What I wish they saw is the Son of God, worshiped forever in eternal glory, who takes up the curse and the sufferings and the neediness of mankind in order to live faithfully under that so that he might redeem it all. So that's what's going on. What does it mean? Well, first, it means that Jesus went into the wilderness to secure our salvation. I want you to turn to Hebrews in your Bibles. Somebody take out a pew Bible and tell me where Hebrews 2 is. Bible sword drill time. Anybody got Hebrews 2? What's that? 1001 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews 2. I want you to make your way down to verses 14 through 18. This is talking about God and his son, Jesus. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, there's two kind of theological points that you need to understand that are going on here. Jesus took up our humanity for two reasons. Number one, so that he could stand in our place as a substitute. Right? And then, so think substitute. And then the second thing I want you to think is sympathetic. Two S's. So that he could be a substitute for us. So that he could be sympathetic to us, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So Jesus went into the wilderness to become a substitute for us so that through death he might render the devil powerless. That's the first thing. He went into the wilderness to secure our salvation. And then secondly, he went to be a sympathetic high priest. Flip over to chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Let's start back up at 14. 414. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted so that one day when he was at God's right hand, which is where he is now, there would be a sympathetic ear for you when you prayed in temptation and need. That's why the Bible says it's a throne of grace. So we don't need to pray to God as if there's no sympathy there. Jesus took up our humanity 
in order to sympathize with us. And let's remember the nature of his temptations and struggles. It's not that he can't relate to us. It's that we can't relate to him. Because I have had some nights where I thought I was going to come apart in two, starting in the brain and ending up at the toes. But I've yet to sweat drops of blood. And the Bible says that Jesus went into those situations so that he could be our faithful high priest. And then thirdly, going back to Mark, this is where it goes from awesome to maybe a little less awesome for us. Jesus went out to the wilderness to show us what following him would be like. It says there in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, after he was baptized, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That word drove him out is the word ekbalo. Ek meaning out, and balo meaning to cast or to throw. That's where we get that word ballistic from. So ballistics is the study of what? Guns, right? Bullets and things that are thrown, like ballistic missiles, boom, right? And so as soon as Jesus heard, you are my son, man, with you I'm well pleased, you're beloved, now, boom, out into the wilderness. Jesus went out to the wilderness to show us what following him would be like. You don't have to flip there, but back in Hebrews it says, we need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from, your, from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Man, I love that those verses are there. It means that every time I suffer and I think I'm going to lose it and lose my faith and walk away, or like Andrew Luck, get so mentally worn down that I retire. Did you hear about that? Sometimes I feel like I'm going to mentally get worn down and retire from Christianity. And when I do, the Bible says I can look up to the heavens in my mind and not see a God there who can't sympathize, but a son at his right hand who can sympathize and who endured everything that I feel like I'm going through. And as I consider him, I don't lose heart and I don't grow weary. One commentator says this, the road Jesus must tread, the road Jesus must tread, precisely because he is God's dear son, is the road that leads through dry and dusty paths, through temptation and apparent failure. So it will be for us as well. If we start the journey imagining that God is a bully, an angry, threatening parent, ready to yell at us, slam the door on us, or kick us out in the street because we haven't quite made the grade, we will fail at the first whisper of temptation. But if we remember the voice that spoke those powerful words of love, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, then we will find the way through. So the Bible here says, you're my son, you're my beloved son, and then he sends Jesus immediately out into the desert. The same thing for us. I don't want to promise you this morning, if you become a Christian, that things are going to straighten up for you and go well. Man, there are seasons where things go well. 
I'm praying right now for a season where things go well. But there are often seasons where it's terrible. And it's terrible not because you aren't a Christian, but precisely because you are. Now one writer says this, Our evangelism fails our hearers if we give the impression that becoming a Christian is mainly a way of solving our problems and making life tolerable, even enjoyable for ourselves. Certainly it is about receiving. Salvation by grace through faith makes that abundantly plain. But it is receiving a salvation which brings us into the people of God. And that is anything but an easy route. It is the way of daily dying and rising with Christ. Our evangelism needs to make that clear. Or what we call follow-up will always be failing. So we learn what's going on here with these Old Testament resonances that we should hear. Is that Jesus is this new Adam who's entering into the curse, the wilderness, for the sake of his people. He's with the wild animals. He's being tempted by Satan, and he's under need. And the scripture says he did that to be our substitute and to be sympathetic to us. And what we need to learn from that is that there's only one way to stand right before God, and that is if by faith you stand in Christ. So before we take the Lord's Supper, let me explain this. Here's what the Bible says, and it's, The kind of categories that you need to learn to think in. The Bible says that when we place our faith in Jesus, that we are in God's mind put into Christ. So that when God looks at us, he sees us through his son. So that by faith, kind of no matter what we've done, God will look at us through the obedience of Jesus. And God will say, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And he'll give us strength and he'll send us help in time of need. That's what happens when we believe in Jesus. And so we need to trust in him to be placed in him. And then, having been fully and freely forgiven by his grace, we need to walk like him. And he went out into the wilderness to show him what following him would sometimes be like. He took up flesh and blood so that he might redeem our flesh and blood. And we celebrate that with the Lord's Supper. And because it represents such a weighty thing, it is not to be taken lightly. This is a a symbolic act that by doing it faithfully brings sustaining grace to those who hear it. And so we shouldn't cheapen it by cheapening it. And so as we begin to take the Lord's Supper, let me make a a couple of things plain. First of all, if you're not a believer in Jesus, then you just need to let this go by. Uh, Because what we're getting ready to do in the Lord's Supper is a physical sort of ritualistic thing that God has given us to demonstrate through real elements what we need. We needed someone else's flesh torn for us and someone else's blood bled for us. And as we take this what we're symbolically saying is my soul feeds on Jesus and his grace alone. So if your soul doesn't do that, if you're lost, you need to let this go by. And don't worry, we're not looking around to kind of mark you so that afterwards we can hit you with a track. We'll respect you letting it go by. The second person who needs to let this go by is a Christian uh, who is caught in unrepentant sin. Right now, you need to just take this time to confess your sins, to repent, and to get help. And we all need help sometimes, don't we? And so get help, 
and make a commitment that you're going to get help from someone now and you're going to, like what Neil read, you're going to walk in the light. But your life is cheapening grace and so we don't want to cheapen that. But for all who know that they're sinners uh, and however feebly are walking in the light, confessing our sins and learning more and more to depend on Jesus, sinners though we are, uh, I invite you to prepare your hearts to take this meal as our deacons come forward.